This is episode 171 with the former race director of the California International Marathon, the current race director of the Twin Cities Marathon, and host of the Early Call Time podcast, Mr. Eli Ash. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to is a behind-the-scenes look into what it takes to put on a major race. We rarely get to look behind the curtain and hear how races come together, the hurdles that all races face, how races have innovated during the COVID pandemic, how courses are measured, and what you can do to support the races that you love right now. I would like to first thank you for making the Strength Running Podcast consistently the number one or number two most popular running podcast in the country. My job is to bring you the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, psychologists, elite runners, dietitians, and therapists who can help you elevate your performance. While you have to do the work, my goal is to show you the most strategic ways to work smarter and more productively so you can take your running to the next level. Because if you better understand running, if you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll make better decisions about your training, leading to more effective running, fewer injuries, and faster races. Don't miss our other resources that can help you bring your running to the next level. We have a video channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, where I answer your questions, show you effective strength and core routines, and talk through your most pressing training issues. And of course, our home base is strengthrunning.com. For more than 10 years, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and different coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Inside Tracker, a company that helps endurance athletes optimize their training after taking a simple blood test. I'm a customer myself, and I just love their science-based approach, and I think this is one of those investments that can actually make you into a better runner. You can figure out if you're over or under training, so you can train more effectively. And if you're ready, you can use code STRENGTHRUNNING with no space to save 10% on any of their blood testing kits at insidetracker.com. All right, runners, you're about to get a sneak peek behind the scenes into the job of a race director. Joining me is Eli Ash, the current race director for the Twin Cities Marathon and the prior race director for the California International Marathon. During his tenure, CIM was America's fastest-growing major marathon and hosted two USA Track and Field Marathon National Championships. Prior to that, he served as Logistics and Operations Manager for the Austin Marathon and Half Marathon. He also holds an MBA in Sports Business from San Diego State University and a BA in English from Whitman College, where he was captain of the cross-country team. You can also hear him as the host of the Endurance Events Focus podcast, early call time. In this conversation, we're going to talk about how races are started, permitting, course measurement, how decisions to cancel events were made earlier this year, and what you can expect in 2021 as races get back online. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Eli Ash. Eli, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation because it's outside of my wheelhouse and I don't 
really know what I might learn here, but that's, I think, what makes it so interesting. And what we're going to talk about today was suggested to me by one of our listeners. So a big thank you and a shout out to Scott for the idea. And uh, today we're trying to learn how a major race comes together. And I understand that it's it's fairly easy from a logistical perspective, right, Eli? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm just kicking <laughs> back all year. It's funny. So many people discover what we as a race director do. And their next question is, and that's a full-time job. And anyone who's in the industry has gotten that question before. And you either have to you know, laugh and take it in stride or bite your tongue because, yeah, it's a full-time job and then some. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. And I, I think most runners, you know, we almost take for granted the well-oiled machine that is a major race. You know, we just go there and we assume that the timing chips will work, the bib and the swag bag will be ready, and all the hydration stations are well-stocked. The race starts on time, which sounds like an easy one, but you'd be surprised. Um, you know, all these other details that that I'm sure you are noticing that I'm leaving out of this list right here uh, because, you know, you're in this every day. Uh, and I thought maybe we could start with a year out from a major race. You're the race director for the Twin Cities Marathon. You uh, were previously the race director for CIM, California International Marathon. Uh, so you have this great experience at multiple major races here. And um I, I'd love with I'd love to get started with you know what happens a year out. Does it start with like getting a permit from the city, or is there an, another first step? Yeah, uh, I actually want to uh, push out even a little further than that. There's a Great, moment. I love it. Well, yeah, while planning for every year's race, you know, you're planning for the upcoming edition of the event where someone says a great idea and it is something you know that you want to pursue and it is the first idea that has come up this year that you know you're not going to pursue this year even though you want to pursue it in the future. The ship has already sailed on that. And because we're, you know, major events were more like a battleship. Uh it's, you know, not like it turns around on a dime. It takes a few miles. And so that'll usually happen several months before, say, the upcoming, you know, here's the 2020 Twin Cities Marathon or the 2019 California International Marathon. And that's the moment where we always create uh, at events that I work on our changes for next year document. And you start keeping track of all those ideas that you don't want to let fade in the mayhem that comes in the buildup to this uh, edition of the race. And you start tracking those ideas of things that you really want to pursue for whether it's next year or whether it's an even further downrange iteration of the event. So I always say that a major event uh, like CIM or like the Twin Cities Marathon actually takes about 18 months to plan each edition, which means for those six months before the event, before that race day, you're actually planning two editions of that event. And it can be pretty busy. Um, really, though, I would say uh, you get through you know, your edition of the event. And something that has to happen, you know, starting immediately after the event is there are large operations, military scale operations. And what that means is no one person knows everything that happened, but your decision makers need to know enough of what happened across everywhere to be able to say, these are the changes we want to make. These are things we want to pursue as improvements. Uh, these are things that we need to correct that didn't go the way we wanted, where a lot of the time, like you say, it runs like clockwork. And people say that, man, it was great. Uh, everything was perfect. And a really common refrain uh, from race directors is, we're glad it looked that way to you. There are these things on the back end, and there are some RDs who I've heard say, um, Jim Heim from New York and a few other folks have always said, like, we want to be a duck on the water. 
on the top, we're floating and it's calm, but underneath, you know, the legs are going pretty furiously to keep us afloat. And, you know, during that whole period where the legs have been going furiously, all these things have been happening. We need to make sure we know what actually happened, what worked and what didn't to make those best decisions for the next year. So there'll be a debrief period after the event, you know, your post-race survey really remove that like fog of war over the event. And then you're wrapping up from the event as well, doing the customer service, making people making sure people get their awards, results are accurate, you know, the lost and found, you know, that person who dropped their ID, <laughs> they're, they're, they're getting it back. Um, and then really what happens is uh, those debriefs are internal with staff and then external with, you know, city stakeholders, uh, vendor partners who are working with you on the event, uh, sponsor partners who are working with you on the event, key volunteer and the participants. And you're taking that whole glom of ideas and going, all right, what are the key things that we want to work on for next year? Um, you mentioned the permit and that's kind of funny. Uh, everyone has this idea in their mind that you can't put on a race. You can't open registration for a race without, and they use this term, like it's this Holy grail, like the permit. Well, so dirty little secret about the permit. Uh, some of the most major races in the world aren't actually receiving what you would think of as that Holy grail permit until very close to the race. We're talking about, you know, days or weeks before the event they don't have that piece of paper in hand. That piece of paper isn't really what gives them the right to put on the event or the right to open registration for the event. It's necessary, but not sufficient. What is uh, an extra step that's required above that is a lot of those stakeholders that I was already talking about, specifically some of those city municipal stakeholders. Uh, they, they tell us to a certain degree what we can and can't do a lot of the time. And so we get through this fog of war phase, we get through this decision making phase of here are the things we want to pursue. And then some of the first folks that we're reaching out to are key partners who are, you know, with the county department of health or with city public works, or, you know, some cities have a special events department with our uh, law enforcement uh, partners and kind of saying, Hey, here are some things that we want to pursue. Let's tell you what we're going to tell you before we tell you before we submit that permit application that uh, we don't want it to be the first time you've heard that we're going to do this thing because we can't do this thing without you. So there's really this process of assessing, getting that feedback, saying, here's what we want to do. And then reaching out to these key community partners, you know, neighborhood associations. Sometimes, sometimes if it's a major piece that you're going to be requesting some sort of a waiver from ordinance on, you're reaching out at a level of city council um, and some of those folks and doing some political advocacy there saying, hey, for this key community event, here is something that is standard for we get why it exists for the thousands of special events that happen in this city every year. But we're the marathon in this city. We're this unique like civic amenity. And because we're that civic amenity and because we do the things that we do uh, with, you know, economic impact for the city, with, you know, leveraged fundraising, with all these elements that we do, and because we're this large scale event like nothing else in the city, over 26 miles of road, these cookie cutter elements maybe don't work for us. So whether it's at the council level or whether it's at those uh, public safety or municipal partner stakeholder levels, uh, really doing some outreach to them and saying, hey, here are the things we want to pursue. What do you think? Um, and then there's give and take there always, but really where it starts with is figuring out what it is that you want to pursue and then doing that appropriate stakeholder outreach to make sure that you are going to be able to pursue those things that will ultimately take your event to the next level and, uh, improve that participant experience for the next year. I love it, man. We're like five minutes in Eli and, and you're telling us dirty little secrets that I don't think <laughs> we're supposed to know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think on, I think on that, like really what it means is like, 
what is necessary to put on an event is the trust of the city, uh, your stakeholders in the city who are putting on, you know, the event with you. They're not working for you or you're not uh, taking over their city. Uh, really a uh, concept in uh, public safety is the concept of like joint command. And what that means is having all your decision makers from all these different agencies who have in certain ways, like, you know, bottom line accountability for what happens in public safety in the city or what happens with the event or what happens when there's a fire or what happens when there's a medical emergency. And that idea of joint command is we're all working together and no one's going off like a cowboy and making these calls. Uh, And what that means is you have to have a high level of trust and that high level of trust, uh, what that really means is we know like we can put, you know, an anchor on the calendar that next year we're all going to work together to make sure the major marathon in this city, that unique civic amenity happens. So yeah, you might not have a piece of paper in hand that says here, you can put on your event, but you've been having discussions this year through previous years, building those relationships of trust so that there is that understanding that, yeah, this unique civic amenity is going to happen. And we're all going to operate together, not just on race day and joint command, but as these stakeholders in the event, in the build up to the event, because we all agree that we want to make it the best it can be. Right. Now you mentioned economic impact. And I remember a couple years ago, I remember, and actually it might've actually been earlier this year when they canceled the Boston Marathon due to the pandemic. And I was reading an article about it discussing the economic impact of the Boston Marathon in the city. And it was an incredible amount of economic value that was added to the city of Boston. And I'm just curious, you know, are all major marathons kind of an economic boon to the city? Or is there almost, uh, you know, hidden costs of uh, putting on a race for the city itself that, you know, maybe they're not as attracted to that economic impact, or maybe they are, I'm just not sure. Yeah, uh, forward thinking cities definitely are attracted to that economic impact. And major events usually commission an economic impact study to show here is the impact on the local economy of having this organization here that is putting on this event, Uh, having them work with all these local vendors uh, who it's generating business for them, and then having all these folks travel to the event, uh, come here, stay in our hotels, eat in our restaurants. Uh, there's also the value uh, to some degree with you know television or some other things that may exist for some events of the exposure of the city. And yeah, that economic driver, forward-thinking cities do want that. What's interesting is um, in America, uh, there really is this concept of, okay, there may be that economic impact, but uh, as races have become, you know, over the last several decades, uh, something that is, you know, more noticed and there's been a proliferation of them, uh, the cities have gone, well, we need to recapture hard costs that go into putting on the event. Uh, PD bills are one of the biggest bills uh, for every major marathon in America. Not um, police department? Yeah, uh, police department. Yep. Yeah. Uh, whether it's PD, sheriff, law enforcement, I should say, out there on the streets doing traffic control, uh, and then certain other things to keep our participants safe. And when you uh, start accruing those costs at a really high level, uh, sometimes that can affect the event's ability to do some of the things that would make it a uh, better economic driver for the city, like, you know, events operate on budgets. And if a certain amount of that budget goes to permit fees and police departments and other municipal costs, uh, there are things that you want to do for your runners that might make your event more attractive, that might drive, you know, more tourism and more economic impact that you aren't able to do. So there's a little bit of uh, in America, which is different than in some parts of the rest of the world where event fees are actually cheaper a lot of the time uh, because the uh, costs aren't the same. Uh, but in America, there's a little bit of a negotiation sometimes. And something you'll find at a lot of cities 
is really that they're like, well, we're going to make sure that this event doesn't go away, but we're also going to push to make sure we do cost recovery. Obviously, we're going through a pandemic right now and going through a pandemic, you know, city budgets are crunched and we understand like we're proud to and we want to pay our fair share to make sure we're supporting, uh, you know, uh, the city in the ways that these events can benefit it and not be a drain on it. But at the same time, we want to make sure we're paying our fair share. Uh, And sometimes you see certain other types of public events where you're like, hang on, like, are they being billed for that, for that political rally or for that concert or for whatever else? And there's just a little bit of, at times, negotiation. The city might write an ordinance and say, hey, we're going to capture recovery for these new costs now. And you as an event just have to, you know, have those lines of communication open to the right decision makers to be able to, you know, influence that as appropriate or plan for it as appropriate. If you're like, well, this cost is coming and it is appropriate. It is something that we, you know, do have to pay in order to assure a safe and successful event. This is the really sexy part of the job is talking about like, all right, how do you budget? (laughs) Right. This is like exactly what you were hoping for when you were uh, booking this interview. (laughs) Well, we're going to we're going to see how the sausage is made today. So I kind of want to dive into everything. Um, And and I do want to talk a little bit about the course, because, you know, I'm I have the background of a, a college runner and I ran a lot of road races post collegiately. And I'm just a stickler for a certified race course. If your race isn't certified, I don't really want to run it because then you have never no idea if you've actually run the right distance. Is that do you consider as a race director, a certified course to be a necessary part of putting on a major race? And, you know, what is that process like? Do you work with USA track and field who does most of the race certifications in the country? Or is there a a different process? Do they just do it all by themselves? Yeah, um, I would say as you know, the director of a marathon, you know, a road marathon, you are absolutely like it is mandatory that you certify your race. You got to have an accurate distance. Someone's running a marathon. They want to know what their time was. They want to be able to use it for a qualifier for Boston. That's absolutely necessary. Um, For a major road race, using that term a little more overarchingly, it's funny. There are a few major road races out there that are famously not certified. Uh, their distance is just, yeah, the Falmouth road race is around seven miles. <laughs> I knew to- you were going to say the Falmouth road race. <laughs> um, uh, out in California, wharf to wharf around six miles. And really you can put on a major event depending on what your goals of the event are. And I mean, let's be clear. These are events that have like elite fields too. Also, they know how long their route is. Uh, but it's not tied to the core of what the event is, that it be exactly seven point however many miles or six miles on the nose. Now for a marathon, it's tied to being a marathon distance. 26 miles, 385 yards, that's what you gotta be, right? Um, That absolutely is mandatory. As far as the process of certification goes, there's like this crew of folks around the country who are um, highly skilled at this very specific and technical process of certifying a marathon race route. And then USATF has folks who take that certification and verify it and go, yep, this, we can sign off on it. This counts as a certified route. Uh, These folks, uh, the process that they undertake is hairy at times. When they measure a route, uh, what they are doing is getting on a bike with a calibrated device called a Jones counter. And they have calibrated it on a course in advance. So they know, hey, I've ridden 500 meters. It was this many clicks on my Jones counter. Uh, They make sure that the weather conditions are appropriate, that changes in pressure of their tires or whatever that is won't affect it. And then they do multiple rides of a route uh, 
to assure that it is at least the distance that it says it is. There's actually a short course prevention factor. Uh, your 42.2K marathon is required to be uh, actually slightly over that to assure that if there are any changes to like road furniture, construction, anything like that, that no one will run the marathon distance, set a record, but then have it actually not count. So at least the distance that they say it is. And the way they do that is multiple rides of a route. And you think about some of these uh, major city marathons, uh, you're riding through New York, you're riding through Boston, CIM, you're riding down Fair Oaks Boulevard, which is a major thoroughfare into the city from the, su- uh, the suburbs. And they're on a bike. Uh, and their job is to ride what's called the SPR, the shortest possible route. Uh, that means that if you run a marathon, you will run at least the distance of a marathon, as long as you are on that course. And likely you will run longer than that, because that shortest possible route through multiple rides, they refine it, they make sure it's accurate. It is from curb to curb or from wherever the markings or cones are on the road, the shortest possible route you can run. Uh, In order to do that in Boston, New York on Fair Oaks Boulevard, uh, sometimes these guys are out there at three in the morning. Sometimes they're out there with a, you know, we're paying for a police escort to get them out there. And what they're doing is taking multiple rides of the route, refining and zeroing in on what the shortest possible route is from the start to the finish. And that's your marathon distance. Um, again, they, uh, use algebra. <laughs> uh, I, I've been involved in just a few of these and, uh, they are really zeroing in closely on, this is absolutely the shortest distance that you can run. And, uh, so that way we can be assured that like, you know, what's your marathon PR? Well, it's not for a 41.5 K because you ran the tangents really well. If you ran the route, it was actually the marathon distance. It was that 42.2 K or 26.2 miles that it has to be in order for that result to up to race standards really count. Yeah. And if we're talking about algebra, we're going to be way over my pay grade here. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that it's a pretty rigorous process. And so what, you know, what do you say to runners who, you know, finish the race and their watch says 26.8 miles or something like that? Because I get this question, you know, probably every week. Well, first of all, congratulations, you just ran a marathon. Um, (laughs) I I think that's the first thing you should say to any marathon finisher and then put a medal around their neck. Um, But uh, outside of that, yeah, no, I understand that for sure. And that happens all the time. Um, So there's a term that comes to mind uh, a lot for me about something being accurate, but not precise. Like your GPS is a great tool. It is accurate enough to be useful to tell you, hey, my tempo run is supposed to be at this pace and I'm monitoring it and seeing how far I've gone, what my instantaneous pace is. It's accurate enough for that. It's really useful in that way, but it's not precise enough uh, in the way that that Jones counter, that calibrated bike, that shortest possible route ride by a trained person is in order for us to say, oh yeah, because your watch clicked in there, that means that's a marathon distance. Now, that doesn't actually mean, I will say that that person who ran however many miles they ran, 26.8, it says on their GPS, may have actually run that long. But the other piece to all of that is that shortest possible route. Um, Something that is super interesting, uh, like, and not every runner has a wheel, but a lot of coaches do. And so if you're in a training group, you've got a coach, odds are they've got a wheel. Uh, I would be really interested if everyone went to a corner or a cone and went, all right, I'm going to measure this distance here right on the corner of the curb or the cone. And the shortest possible route is actually measured 30, uh, 30 centimeters from the curb. Um, and take that turn and do that. But then let's say you're running in a pack. You and I are running together, Jason, and I'm running on the outside shoulder of you as we go around a turn. Uh, if you take the wheel and put that, whether it's, you know, 
30 centimeters, whether it's 60 centimeters, however far you decide to the outside, you're going to have a wider radius on that turn and you're going to cover that extra distance. Now, over the marathon distance, a race that has dozens, sometimes hundreds of turns, you take those turns wide, you're running in a pack, uh, even you're paying attention to the tangents, but you're in a pack, you're going over to aid stations, you don't run perfect tangents, all of those couple meters per turn, few meters per turn add up, and all of a sudden 26.2 becomes 26.4 or 26.5 really quickly. And then again, just beyond that, the actual uh, precision of your device. I know people who have run races together next to each other. And sure, there may be those minor variations of, yeah, like I was on your outside shoulder. We took that, I took that turn wider than you did. So yeah, I should run a little bit longer, but I've seen people run in and be like, oh yeah, that was clearly a pretty accurate course. My, you know, 10K, I clocked in at 6.24 or whatever. And someone else goes, yeah, I clocked in at 6.44. And I ran next to you and you just outkicked me, but we were next to each other the whole way. So part of it just might be your device, you know, might've had a bad day, might've, you know, gone under a bridge and not clicked in correctly, might've been impacted by a building or just might be a device that runs short or long. So ultimately, uh, GPS versus Jones counter, uh, there's really no case to be made. Uh, if you're saying, Hey, a race is getting from this start line to this finish line and knowing that it can be no shorter than this distance, that true race distance is what you have to utilize. I like that, uh, a way of thinking about a race because it, it kind of moves you away from thinking that, okay, this race is 5,000 meters point, you know, zero, zero, which really isn't. Um, and you know, I, I'm always saying run the tangents, run the tangents, run the tangents to my athletes when they're running road races. And and I love to look at the, the race course because I want to see, you know, how many turns are there? Is this something that we're really going to be having to pay attention to a lot in our race strategy? Because like you said, you know, you don't want to run an extra quarter mile that might add a, you know, a couple minutes to your finish time. And if you're someone who's going after a Boston qualifying time, or you have some other aggressive goal, like maybe breaking four hours in the marathon or whatever the time goal might be, you know, you want every minute and you want all of those steps to count. And so running the tangents is is certainly, uh, really beneficial. Now, is there also a little bit of a buffer that's added to every race measurement, like you said, to ensure that it's not under the race distance for that course? Yep. That's called the short course prevention factor. And it is, you know, in the algebra that's done this many clicks, uh, you're not then comparing those 500 meters to those 5,000 meters. Uh, you're comparing those, how many clicks in those 500 meters of the calibration course to 5,005 meters. Uh, a race is one 1,000th long when it is certified in order to make sure, let's say a record is set at an event. And, you know, someone was out there riding their bike, they zeroed in on it uh, over their series of rides, and they rode like a really good, really efficient ride. Well, really good, really efficient still might not have been absolutely perfect. And when a record is set, uh, courses are re-verified before the record can be validated, can be accepted by the governing body. And this is more for open elite competition. Age group may not always be verified at this level. There's still a committee review, but uh, a different process there. But the last thing you want is to say, well, that uh, race, which let's be clear, was a marathon, you know, 42.2K, you know, major event. Well, actually, this absolutely perfect post-race ride, you know, validated that because of some minor construction that has happened during the several years since that was uh, last measured, that curb to curb, the way this person could have ran the course, it was actually short. 
And so you bake in a short course prevention factor is what it's called. That's uh, a thousandth long. So uh, 5K is measured at 5,005 meters. Uh, 42.2K would be measured 42.2 meters long uh, in order to assure that through those adjustments over time and also through any imperfections in the ride, that the distance that uh, the race is said to be, it is actually at least that distance no matter what. Now, this sounds trivial, and I'm sure, you know, these things don't really matter to us adult recreational runners. We're doing it for fun. We're doing it because we enjoy it. But of course, for these pros, these elite athletes who are vying for huge amounts of money, I mean, time bonuses, uh, uh, record bonuses, whoever wins, um, you know, uh, uh, records for, you know, their whatever country they're from, all these different things. And it, a lot is riding on the accuracy of the course. And, and these things matter so much at that very, very high level. And, you know, us, us adult runners, you know, we kind of just laugh about it and, you know, we curse our watches for not being entirely accurate. But uh, I would just like to point out that it is so crucially important at those high levels. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's important down to the inch, you know, if you run whatever time plus one second versus whatever time you're getting or not getting that time bonus, you know, this is how you make your living. Um, and you're getting or not getting that qualifier. And yeah, no, it's really important that those races be accurate. I will say though, Jason, that, I mean, we take it seriously for whether you're that pro or whether you're that age grouper as well. Like, I mean, the job of a mass participation event race director is to cater to every constituency that wants to be out there uh, participating in their event, take care of the elites to the back of the pack and everyone in between. And it might not be how you make your living, but like you're a runner, I'm a runner. We give a damn about our running and you give a damn. So it's my job to give a damn. And it's just as important for me, uh, for my mid packer and my back of the packer who has that personal goal or who just wants to finish and maybe they can just get there. And what that means is I want to make sure they did the full distance, but it wasn't any longer than it has to be so that they can, you know, truly look back at their accomplishment and feel like, yeah, they weren't cheated. They got what they paid for and they set that goal and they achieved it. And that is incredibly meaningful. Uh, to help people, you know, set, achieve and celebrate personal fitness goals, just as it's meaningful to host national championships and have folks qualify for Olympic trials or uh, to represent their country internationally uh, across the board. Uh, all of those things have to be meaningful. Those are all important constituencies uh, to a major event. I'm just sitting here thinking how almost crazy it is for you to say that, because when I go to an NBA game, or if I go to an NFL football game, they are not really catering to me. They are catering. That game is, is for those athletes and everyone else around there. You know, there there's the entertainment side of it. There's the TV side. But the person who's putting on those games is really making sure that those athletes who are playing the game can, can actually play the game well. But running is so different, right? Like you are putting on an event for the best runners in the world and also the person who's finishing last. And, and you want everyone to have a great time, to have the race work for them. And, and I just find that, you know, it's, it's almost like a pat on the back for the sport of running. Like we are just catering to everyone. And I just love that. Yeah, no, it's really important that races uh, do that. And I think there's been this year, if anything, a little bit of a reckoning with running as well, saying, all right, what can we do to be even more inclusive? We say we're these things, but, you know, there's a certain degree of reckoning that has to take place with like the whiteness of running <laughs> and, uh, you know, saying, all right, what can be done to be not just, you know, inclusive on speed, but all of these other things that should be taken into account to make sure folks like what we want to do is like this job 
those mornings getting up at 2.30 to get out there and sling Cade, as we call it, when we're moving fence. Uh, you know, if you're not doing this because you are passionate about, you know, helping people improve their lives through running, at some point you're going to stop doing it. Uh, it's just not worth it. And if that's what your passion is, and that's what I say mine is, and many folks in our industry say our passion is, well, let's be what we say we want to be and really like try to do these things to, yes, be inclusive from the front of the pack to the back of the pack. But then let's expand the pack too. Let's make sure that everyone feels welcome in that pack. And I think that that's a major reckoning that uh, is long overdue that's taking place in our industry. And just to be clear, uh, there are already tensions that exist in making sure that race works as well for that person who is the last finisher as for that person who is trying to run a time to represent their country internationally. Um, those tensions already exist and there are times decisions are made that impact one constituency, you know, in a positive way and another constituency in a negative way. And that absolutely uh, is something that a race director, one, always has to be comfortable doing making those decisions. And then two, really needs to listen to everyone who is in their constituency or who they want to be in their constituency to what they have to say about those changes in order to try and balance balance out all of those different interests in order to assure that if we're an event that has an elite field, we're serving them. If we're an event that people are coming to to try and qualify for Boston, we're serving them. If we're an event that people are running as a fundraising athlete and or their first marathon and they're just trying to finish, we're serving them too. All of those constituencies are important. And like, it's important to have thick skin <laughs> in this job too, because those decisions are going to be made at times. Like there are times that someone who is a mid-packer says about a race, I don't know why they made that decision. And uh, that's fair. It's on the race to explain that and say, hey, here's why, here's why we did what we did. Here's what we need from you. Uh, and it's also then incumbent on the runner to say, well, that race may have made a decision that does or doesn't work for me. But at these major races, uh, our job is to balance out all those constituencies and serve all of them as well as we can. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you were you were kind of hinting at how this year has has been a really tough year. It's also been kind of an interesting year because, you know, a lot of races are doing some different things. And and I'd love to talk a little bit more about uh, what those things might be in the future. And, and we talked a little bit offline about, um, you know, this part of the conversation and, you know, how the, the pandemic has impacted the road race industry and some of the, the interesting, uh, new things, innovations that are happening in the, the road race space. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what races have been doing this year to, accommodate the fact that, you know, most of them have been canceled and what might we see differently in the future at some of these big races? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question, Jason. Thank you. Um, as I alluded to, uh, there are obviously certain things just as an industry, as a society, as a culture on the whole that we're saying, Hey, we need to reckon with this. If we think running is this great things for folks, let's, you know, do what we can, you know, we have the benefit at twin cities in motion and at many organizations like ours of being a nonprofit. So we get to do some things that aren't necessarily driven about making every last dollar, but that are about like expanding the reach of our mission, whether that be in the DEI space, as I alluded to before, and as I think many races have been doing and will hopefully continue to do and do a better job of, but also in the space of like, well, what can we do to help you improve your life through running more? Um, you can't come to our in-person race. Well, here at Twin Cities in Motion, we've launched these new mini challenges, these virtual training challenges. And oh, we said we wanted to be more inclusive. Well, it's not necessarily about running a distance in a time. It's not a virtual race. It's saying, hey, here's this training goal of this many minutes over a month. 
a private Facebook group that allows you to connect with other people and communicate with other folks and motivate each other who are doing that uh, challenge and, you know, compete, you know, earn prizes, have small challenges in there. And that's a way to uh, right now fill the gap during a pandemic. But also there are some folks who feel really comfortable in that virtual environment. So those virtual training challenges are definitely something that organizations like ours with our mini challenges or some others uh, who've, uh, who are organizations similar to ours have started. And my hope is that these things don't go away. Like we are these mission-driven organizations that believe we can improve people's lives through running and fitness. Let's do that. Let's commit to it. Let's reach people in different ways than just a traditional road race. Of course, beyond that, there's also just the idea of like virtual races being a thing that, you know, some people, maybe hardcore runners have looked down on in some way, but it's not bad. It's different. You know, it's not the same thing as, okay, we just talked about everything that goes in to that certified marathon distance and making sure that that result counts. But like, shame on me if I'm saying I want to change your life through running and you were signed up for a marathon that got canceled and you ran a virtual marathon and I'm saying you're not a marathoner. No, you're a marathoner. Sure. Your time might not be something that you can use for a Boston qualification or certainly not for Olympic trials or Olympic qualification. And those organizations have their reasons for having competition standards. But like as far as gatekeeping, what we're trying to do with running, uh, these are things that organizations like Twin Cities in Motion uh, really are looking at right now and saying, hey, what can we do to make running, you know, more inclusive and expansive for everyone? Um yeah, it's really an interesting time in the sport. I, I think the pandemic uh, across the board, but especially in um, industries that rely on mass gathering, uh, has really forced a lot of us to become creative and say, what are the things that we can do now? And then my hope is that the ways that we've been creative, we continue to be creative and figure out the ways that it adds value to our participants' lives, because that's what our mission is, is improving their lives through running. Right. And I'd love to see, um, you know, those digital changes to these events, you know, all of the the extras, you know, the other additional support and resources that are given runners after they register for a race, or maybe even if they don't register for a race, they just go to your website and they see that, oh, wow, there's all this stuff to help me improve my running and all that, you know, that, that'd be great to see long term, because I think it just builds you know, a more inclusive running community. It it helps runners become better runners. So in that way, it really elevates the sport. And what I find most exciting is this idea of bringing in new people and really expanding, you know, the, the pie of who's running races, because, you know, now we're talking about expanding the sport of running and be you know, creating more runners, creating more fans of running, you know, and, and that I think is, is very exciting to me. Yeah, that's definitely an excitement that I share. And I think uh, shame on us if we don't make that a goal. Uh, running, not racing. Racing, of course, has proven not to be pandemic proof. <laughs> you know, large scale gatherings of folks traveling from the country or the globe over to get together and run a race together. That hasn't been able to happen in America during the pandemic. But running has actually proven to be something that's not just pandemic proof, but that uh, folks take up because of the pandemic. Now, that person who's running on their own in their neighborhood every day isn't, you know, running with a club. They, uh, right now, that just wouldn't necessarily be appropriate all the time um, in certain locations where there are restrictions about what can be done in public or in groups. Um, they're not running races, but they're a runner. And if they're a runner, that's someone who I want to find a way to serve. I want to find a way to invite them into what can be a really great community. And uh, that's something that we should all be taking these tools that we have developed 
uh, during the pandemic and saying, are there ways to develop these tools, develop other new tools, or use some of our core exciting products that we have and make sure that that person who right now doesn't feel comfortable running with others, they don't feel like they're really a runner. We tell them, no, you're a runner. You're one of us. Come, you know, set, achieve and celebrate your fitness goals with us at one of our events. Right, right. Now, I can't imagine, you know, besides forcing you to innovate, the pandemic has just been really incredibly challenging from a logistical perspective. Uh, You know, when did you decide, or actually, you might have come on board as the race director before or or maybe after Twin Cities decided to postpone? Yep, just before. So uh, I um, started in May, and that, you know, uh, the pandemic was accelerating. And in order to give folks, you know, enough lead time before the event, uh, we made the decision in late June. So uh, for me, um, you know, maybe having been new here, uh, it was, you know, still, I came here to put on the Twin Cities Marathon, not to cancel the Twin Cities Marathon. Uh, but for folks who are registered, for folks who've been working for years on the event, obviously, you know, a big, tough decision to make, but 100% the right one, as we've seen when every event like this has made that call. And what we decided we wanted to do was make the call at a time that was respectful enough of our participants and their efforts to, you know, not have folks continue registering for or continue training for a race that wasn't going to happen in the way that they thought. So in late June, um, we made that decision to uh, cancel uh, what would usually be uh, the first Sunday in October, the Twin Cities Marathon. I'd love for you to give us a glimpse, you know, in the back end, you know, what happens after you make that decision? I can't imagine it's easy to have that conversation, not just with the runners who have registered for the race, but all the sponsors who have committed financially to the race, the volunteers, uh, not to mention, you know, everyone who actually works there, you know, after you've started, you know, spending money on the race and, you know, getting that permit, which I know is super important and you get it two years ahead of time, <laughs> but, you know, all those, all those things that you've been doing, you know, for, for 18 months before the race kind of, can you talk through some of that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the communication is key throughout this whole process and the communication doesn't start with the cancellation. It starts in advance of the cancellation. You know, you're having discussions with folks with the relevant permitting authorities. You're having discussions with your board. You're having discussions with your partners and just giving folks the heads up. The last thing you want to do is have a major stakeholder in be in your race be surprised by a major decision about your race. So there are these internal discussions of, hey, here's the lay of the land. Here's where things are. And then as things accelerate, you have those discussions again. And then what really has to happen is there's this key moment when enough balls have rolled far enough in a certain direction that you know the call has to be made. And then it's getting your ducks in a row to communicate publicly and say, hey, here is where we are. Uh, These are the reasons why a thing has to happen. And here's what the thing is that has to happen. And here's what it means for you. And it's having everything lined up so that folks, and they will always have a certain question. Someone of the 30,000 registrants for Twin Cities Marathon Weekend will have a question that we didn't think of to address, but it's our job in advance of, all right, we've made that call to be able to, for the vast majority of those 30,000 folks, not to mention our full staff internally, our board, our, we have 400 functionally staff, they're dedicated year-round volunteers who are association members, um, our sponsor partners, our vendor partners, our volunteer groups. Uh, we've got to make sure that we have all of our answers ready to go for them so that we can say, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And here's what it means for you. And that can take some time to get those ducks in a row. And then even beyond that, someone will always have that question where you're like, well, we had not considered that. We absolutely have to get you an answer. Let us get back to you on that. But it's really 
about communicating and making sure you have plans for what it is that you're going to communicate uh, to all of those different folks. Um, outside of that, once we canceled this year, a thing that we committed to at uh, Twin Cities in Motion was not just our marathon, but any other races we had in the build up to the marathon uh, weren't full cancellations. They were becoming virtual events and we were going to make sure we got everyone their stuff. So uh, our race operations manager who has the warehouse is her responsibility. Uh, her job went from, you know, these fun race day experiences, which don't get me wrong, you know, out there 2.30 a.m. slinging Cade, you've got to really want to do it to do it. Uh, but there are elements of it that aren't always the most fun. Uh, those cold mornings in the Twin Cities, those rainy days, whatever it may be. But switch from that fun job to her job became coordinating an army of staff and volunteers to mail out 14,000 packets on a timeline that she developed over the fall for all of our pre marathon weekend events, and then marathon weekend events to make sure that everyone who was running the marathon and 10 mile virtually got their stuff in the mail before the race happened virtually on uh, kicking off when it would have uh, shortly before race day. And that was a huge undertaking. And it's something that, uh, you know, we did in house, you know, there are mail houses and places that you can do that. But you also alluded to uh, the expense that goes into putting on a race in advance. And, you know, partially for us, uh, we did it in house for cost reasons. Um, at a time where we're not receiving registration revenue, like we usually would, uh, every dollar that we can spend in-house, do something in-house is a dollar that we can spend on making sure we're able to maintain our incredibly talented and dedicated staff throughout this time. And I know a lot of folks, you know, look at races and go, well, you know, why did this race refund and this race didn't, or did this race do one thing and this race do another? And something that uh, I get laughed at for saying sometimes, because this word has taken on a different meaning in this time, and I don't mean it in the way that the different meaning is, is every race is a snowflake. And what I mean is it's unique and beautiful in its own special way and like no other. And so every race has all of the different partnership pieces, uh, goals for being put on, um, ways they are staffed versus managed by volunteers that just build to this is the race being what it is. And the, any given one of those pillars coming out means the whole thing tumbles down, like, you know, the Jenga stack. And so for uh, our event, one of the things that is so crucial to it is we have a large and immensely talented staff. And in order to be able to maintain that staff, I mean, there's pain for all of us this year between furloughs and pay reductions and whatever else. But one of our guiding principles uh, as our leadership team has been our staff is incredible. They work hard and are very talented. And we are going to do what we can to make sure that they want to still be here when we emerge from this on the other side, because there's going to be a Twin Cities Marathon in 2021 and 2022 and 2023. And uh, deci decisions that we make now affect those events long downrange. And so what we want to make sure that we do is uh, make the decisions that allow us to retain incredibly talented staff so that we can continue putting on an exceptional Twin Cities Marathon and our full slate of Twin Cities in Motion events. So there are a lot of decisions, uh, factors that go into the decision, but ultimately like our guiding light throughout all of it has been what's best for, you know, this community amenity, like none other, the Twin Cities Marathon. Uh, let's make decisions that allow us to retain that immense and incredibly special event. And that's been a guiding light for every step of the process from pre-cancellation through to today. You earlier compared a major race to a battleship. And I think one of the things I'm learning is that it it's more like an aircraft carrier. It's even bigger. I mean, the number <laughs> yeah. of stakeholders and, and people involved, organizations, groups in putting on a race and making sure that everything goes smoothly is just huge. And it's so many more than, you know, the average runner really thinks about everything from, you know, your, your 
city government to all of the the health professionals and safety professionals as well and and all the other sponsors and other stakeholders. So it sounds like just a Herculean effort to turn that ship around after, you know, something as unexpected as the pandemic happens and and you know, get ready for for 2021. So is is the race on for 2021? Everything's on schedule? Throughout all this, uh, our marker in the sand has been we want to return uh, to putting on a great Twin Cities Marathon weekend, uh, the first weekend in October 2021. And yeah, we are on track. Um, our event and other major events are definitely going to look different. Like we said, the aircraft carrier, the battleship, whatever it may be, um, you know, there are certain decisions that have to be made far enough in advance where all of a sudden, you know, hey, October 1st, something changes. Well, it's not like we can pivot in those couple days and say, oh, yeah, here's an entirely different aid station plan. Certain die are cast in advance. Uh, and some of those decisions have to be made in a pandemic environment, which we will hopefully be substantially along the way from uh, exiting uh, by fall of 2021. But yeah, no, we're pointing towards putting on uh, an event that we know will look different, but that we also know will be a great celebration of the Twin Cities and uh, for our running community uh, the first weekend of October in 2021. And we couldn't be more excited for that. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be some bumps in the road along the way. There are hurdles we have to clear, no doubt. And events earlier in the year, um, we've seen certain events already cancel. Uh, events later in the year like us, well, some other events are moving to later in the year. And then events in the summer are on the knife's edge and really trying to figure out, hey, on this large event, can I happen? You know, still TBD. But for us, fortunately, being in the fall, uh, we are pointing towards, again, what we expect will be in some ways an event that will look different than it would have before, but it will still maintain so many of the great elements of the Twin Cities Marathon uh, that first Sunday of October in 2021. Well, I'm feeling very optimistic with all of the vaccine news that's coming out right now. It sounds like, you know, it's mostly a logistical issue right now, getting, you know, as many uh, double doses of that vaccine out to the American population. And it, it sounds like a logistical nightmare. I've been reading up on what it's going to take. And, you know, I, I think a, a major marathon race director might be up to that logistical challenge. <laughs> so a uh, funny story, I actually have a friend who works for the Atlanta Track Club who recently took a leave of absence in order to uh, contribute to the efforts to distribute the vaccine. So I think that's exactly right. And if you want something done, uh, find uh, event people to do it for you. Uh, I, I saw some <laughs> yeah. friends making a joke that, hey, if we wanted to solve this pandemic, we should have just called in a bunch of event people and we could have had the whole thing squared away in 72 hours and had, you know, uh, absolutely uh, slapping tunes while we did it. So uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't disagree with that assessment. <laughs> I love it. Uh, now, Eli, one more question before we sign off for today. I got an interesting question from um, someone on Twitter, and they asked, what can runners do to support the races that they love right now? So I understand, you know, the Twin Cities Marathon is roughly 10 months away, but someone loves that race. How can they support you or, or how can anyone really support any major race that they, they want to see continue on? Because I understand that you know, it's been a challenging time for a lot of races. And, and unfortunately, some races that, you know, don't have the support or, you know, maybe the reserves to to weather this storm may not come back. So what can we do right now? First of all, Jason, thank you to your listener for asking that, that I and many folks uh, in the industry definitely appreciate uh, that folks are thinking of that, because we do view ourselves as these community assets. Um, and to see other folks treating us in that way warms my heart. Um, 
be on the lookout for what any given race asks you. Uh, like I said, every race is a snowflake, beautiful and unique in their own ways. Uh, they may have a virtual challenge out there. Um, they may have a virtual event out there. They may have just an ask for a give. You know, we're a 501c3 nonprofit and in the running industry, even many of these events that are large scale events are nonprofit events, which means, you know, it's a tax write off to donate. So see what the events that are closest to you near and dear to your heart have out there, and then just consider joining in. You might say, well, I said I was never going to do a virtual race. Well, you know, this year is a year that we never thought we were going to have. And if that organization has a virtual race, you know, participating in that might be a great way to support it right now. Um, those virtual challenges are the same thing. And then be on the lookout for when we return. And then when we do return and when registration does open for whether it's the Twin Cities Marathon or that other event that you are passionate about, um, go ahead and look at what they're telling you. Their policy is going to be about their event going forward for any cancellations, refunds, deferrals, whatever it might be, and go in with eyes wide open to that and to anything else that they communicate about you, uh, about their event. Uh, at registration or once you are registered and are showing up for an event, because things are going to look different going forward. Different events, all being these different, unique, beautiful snowflakes are going to have different policies. Go in and know what you're getting into and be okay with that. Or if you're not, choose another race that has a policy you are okay with. Once you show up on the race site, have read those instructions, understand what is expected of you as relates to social distancing or showing up at a certain time or a mask wearing policy or not spitting or whatever it may be, uh, because we're going to need to make sure that in this new environment, uh, certain things on that safety side are going to look different too once we are back. Because our goal once we come back is that we stay back and we do it better than we did before. And we're going to need runners involved in that in order to make sure we're able to achieve it. Great ideas, Eli. Thank you so much. Uh, if there's a group of folks who might be more disappointed in cancel races than runners, it's probably race directors. Uh, but people like you open up opportunities for us runners. You lay the groundwork so we can do what we love and you know, it wouldn't really be possible without what you do. So thank you very much for spending some time with me today and talking through all of the super sexy logistics of putting on a major race. Thanks, Jason. I was glad to be on. And that's our show today. I hope this discussion helped you better understand the complexities of major races, better appreciate the hard work that goes into it, and gave you a few ideas on how you can support the race that you're passionate about. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Inside Tracker. You can see what they're all about at insidetracker.com. And if you want to take the leap, use code STRENGTHRUNNING to save 10% on any of their tests that they offer. What they do do is test over 40 different biomarkers, like various stress hormones and vitamins, to determine if you're training too hard, too little, or you have any physiological weaknesses that could potentially be remedied by diet, exercise, or different lifestyle changes. So in other words, you learn about problems that you have that then have actionable solutions. And what I love about Inside Tracker is that they don't just isolate problems, but they give you a whole bunch of ways of improving your results. They use blood testing to get this information, and then they communicate what you can do to lift or lower your results into your personal optimal range. For any runner who wants every advantage to see what they're truly capable of achieving, I highly recommend Inside Tracker. I've gotten two ultimate tests myself over the last couple of years, and both experiences were easy relatively painless. I don't really like needles, so <laughs> my take on needle pain is admittedly overblown. But if you're not a scaredy cat like me, you'll do great. 
head on over to insidetracker.com to check out all of their different testing kits. And don't forget, code STRENGTHRUNNING will save you 10% on any test that they offer. That's all from me today. Thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast and being part of the Strength Running community. We'll talk soon.